from India's largest newsroom I'm Arun George and this is the Times of India podcast Initially eight cheetahs were brought in from Namibia followed by a second batch of 12 from South Africa they have surprised all the naysayers by hunting prey from day 1 of their release from quarantine in less than a month two cheetahs who were translocated from south africa to madhya pradesh's kuno national park have died another cheetah has died at the madhya pradesh national park hours after it was found injured by a monitoring team the third death among 20 cheetahs brought to india from south africa and namibia sparked a flurry of headlines over the project The translocation of cheetahs from two African nations to India has had its fair share of critics. Questions have been raised over the viability of transplanting cheetahs given the animal became extinct in India in 1952. The deaths of the three cheetahs within weeks of each other hasn't helped resolve any of those doubts. But Dr. Adrian Todd, who's worked with the Indian project and is a cheetah expert based in South Africa, says it may be too early to judge if there's something wrong with this experiment. In today's episode My colleague Jairaj Singh and I spoke with Dr. Adrian about the three cheetah deaths and how he views the progress of the translocation so far. Dr. Adrian is a veterinary wildlife specialist whose research has focused on cheetah health and conservation. South Africa is set to send a dozen cheetahs every year to India for the next 10 years to try and create a viable population of the animal here. Dr. Adrian worked on a report with Indian experts evaluating the risks of moving cheetahs to India. He told us that the biggest worries while moving the cheetahs to India were disease and the actual moving of the animals. So there was a great fear, you know, that during the translocation we were going to end up with some problems. Um the animals stressing and believe me it when they stress like this it it actually can be fatal. They die there and then during the transport. And um this is what we experienced in South Africa, but we had uh, uh, various different protocols that we put in place. We used uh, the, these new drug combinations on the on the cheetahs and actually in the end everything went exactly as we'd hoped i mean these animals were very calm during the translocation they um, showed no real signs of excessive stress and they obviously off, all of them offloaded on the other side um without any uh, significant side effects from the translocation which obviously is is a great delight to us and in terms of the first recorded death of a cheetah in india of mm. in this translocation project the first one was believed to be because of an underlying renal disease was there any way that could have been prevented or do you believe that it was imminent given there was a renal disease with which that cheetah was transported well we see this across the board in many of our felid species but it is particularly a problem in uh, cheetahs and particularly a problem in captive um, cheetahs uh, the actual underlying causes are uh, um, at this stage unknown We don't really know what the incidence of renal diseases in wild cheetahs because often when wild cheetahs die uh, there's nobody there to actually collect fresh samples of the kidneys and and or to determine the actual cause of death in many situations. But from what we can tell I mean it's not a common uh, issue in in truly wild uh, cheetahs. So something in captivity are contributing towards this issue. What I certainly know from my own research um, is that the damage to the kidneys uh, often starts in captive cheetahs very very early on. um in their life and 
you must understand that the, the, the kidney is, uh, in any species, have a tremendous reserve. So, I mean, you can donate one of your kidneys um, you know, to somebody else, uh, which means that you're cutting your kidney function by 50%, and you can still survive, no problem at all. The problem is as soon as you take away another half of that remaining kidney, now you're down to only 25% of your reserve. Uh, that's when you start developing clinical signs of kidney failure. And um, so what I suspect, I mean, certainly in this case, from everything that we've seen, including the post-mortem um, results that we've got for that uh, animal, um, she already had some signs of kidney issues when she was in Namibia. Unfortunately, those were missed. I don't think they did it deliberately. They didn't send us an animal that they believed to be, um, uh, you know, uh, they didn't realize that she had a problem. But anyway, when we looked at the the data retrospectively, it was quite clear she already had some issues when she was in, in, in Namibia, but she was still fine because she hadn't reached that sort of 75% damage threshold where, you know, there's only 25% uh, of the kidney function left. And obviously, as I said, this is a progressive disease. And so by the time we got to sort of uh, January 2023, uh, she had clearly reached that threshold uh, where now things were starting to snowball and she was going to uh, actually develop clinical symptoms. The team there was great in terms of the veterinary team was able to stabilize her. And most of that stabilization is simply by giving her additional fluids, getting rid of the dehydration, um, improving her blood flow to her kidneys and so on. But our experience has been, I mean, I've treated many, many um, treaters in South Africa that, you know, have this kind of problem. And unfortunately, as we say, the prognosis is very poor. Most of them will not survive more than a few months, and it doesn't really matter what you do. Uh, you can try and make things comfortable for them. You can improve their quality of life during those last few months, but you cannot actually turn the ship around. The damage is already there. Dr. Adrian, we're uh, Kuno's ex expecting another 11 cheetahs, I think, in the next two months. And, and you're saying that um, while they have existed with other predators before, Kuno's unfenced and largely unprotected area. Uh, do you mm. think that they will be able to compete with leopards, wolves and sloth bears um, going forward? So I certainly think that they um, they can look after themselves, and we've seen that uh, even in some of our reserves uh, in South Africa, where we have very high lion densities, we have spotted hyenas, which are formidable. And these cheetahs have very good strategies for avoiding that. Cheetah mothers uh, are incredible at the ways in which they negotiate those risks. So I don't anticipate that we're going to have very big problems. We, we will have occasional leopard interactions. I don't think that they'll really will struggle with many of the other smaller carnivore species. Uh, and tigers obviously still will be as much of a risk, I think, as, as leopards if they um, ha had to interact. Um, I think the, the big thing around Kuno is that at this stage, and there's been a lot of speculation about the carrying capacity, but um, you know, one thing we've realized is that India has, it's a very productive environment um, compared to many areas in Africa. So we actually don't really know what cheetah carrying capacity will be at um, Kuno. So we don't really know where this, the, what figure we're going to end up with um, in terms of, of Kuno. If you say, for example, okay, Kuno can accommodate 20 adult cheetahs, you wouldn't just bring 20 adults and cheetahs and dump them, you know, basically putting to your estimated carrying capacity all at once. You would probably start with half that, and that's kind of where we were getting at the moment. So the question is, well, why did we bring 20 animals? Well, one is we, you know, they anticipated that there would be some mortalities. And um, 
it's such an organizational thing to try and organize bringing over animals. So when you've got an airplane that's coming, you might as well bring over quite a few, um, you know, to basically cater for those mortalities. Um, and we can always figure out where we're going to put the others at some stage. Um, I think at this stage, the hunting camps that we've got there, um, uh, yes, there are some challenges with them, but actually they're a very good environment for cheetahs to, to maintain them over a relatively long period of time. One of the downsides of keeping them in the smaller holding facilities is if they're not allowed to breed, then there's a big impact on uh, the breeding potential of females. And we know this from research that if we don't breed females relatively early uh, in their life, their reproductive outputs uh, decrease quite dramatically. Yeah, one concern with keeping some of these um, younger animals in the bomas for long periods of time without allowing any sort of uh, breeding is that we're not going to get the reproductive output that we would hope for. So we've kind of been forced into one situation in allowing some breeding, and obviously that has been successful um, in the early stages with some of the Namibian cheetahs. But, uh, you know, we've encountered obvious problems with um, in, in the last uh, week uh, with regards to one of the females that, um, you know, was unfortunately killed by the, by the males. Just for for our understanding, if you could explain how cheetahs um, should be kept, you know, I, I mean, are they are they essentially kept in, in in sort of fenced areas, or and and when should they be sort of let out? So I think this is another challenge um, for us in South Africa. We very often keep them for short periods of time in small, what we call bomas, but they really are very small camps. It's a, it's a holding pen. It's essentially captivity. Uh, you know, they can't hunt in those kind of camps. Um, that would be ridiculous. So mostly they would be fed um, meat that is, you know, um, collected. Wild cheetahs, we won't keep in that sort of um, kind of situation for very long before we move them into another fence reserve. And most of our fence reserves are relatively large. In the minimum sort of size would be, uh, you know, five square kilometers, but usually much, much larger than that. Um, our biggest uh, fenced reserves are um, sort of 900 square kilometers. In this case, uh, the, the camps that are at Kuno are quite unique. We don't really have a comparable sort of situation like that with multiple animals in um, small camps. In captivity, it's a very similar to our sort of Bowman situation. That's one of, the, one of the tricky things here is that we weren't quite sure the space is certainly enough for them to be able to hunt and um, to maintain a level of um, physical fitness uh, in those camps is not too much of a problem. The only thing that's going to be restricted is their kind of exploratory abilities and so on. But in general, that's not going to cause, you know, we, we have this idea that, you know, put a fence around them that they're going to stress out of their mind because they don't have the freedoms. Um, well, that's not the way in which animals necessarily function. They're stressed about things that are going to be immediate threats to them. Can they get enough food and are they safe uh, from other predators or risks, um, including humans? In that kind of environment where they, they're not seeing another person most of the time, and the rest of the time they're kind of left to themselves, you know, they, they don't see anyone, so they don't encounter other other predators like uh, leopards, so, and then they're going to bump into, into prey, uh, potential prey fairly easily. They don't have to walk very long distances looking for prey to be able to find them. But uh, yeah, in, certainly in terms of breeding, we just don't know how much space is required. In this case, where this female got killed, I doubt whether it's really her inability to be able to run away um, or to get away. She wasn't cornered in, in a corner 
because of the fence, there's plenty of space for her to, to be able to escape from these individuals. Um, so whether that would have been different if she was outside the, the, the fenced uh, you know, area is debatable. But um, certainly in South Africa, we have seen uh, females killed in very large um, uh, fenced reserves where there's plenty of space for them to escape. And these two males are known to be quite aggressive towards other males. Uh, they occupied quite a large proportion of the territory in Pinda Reserve where they came from. And then you've that put together with, uh, with a fairly timid female that's not in estrus, that may have been the, the, the main cause of this. But we do see that happening in South Africa, even in, in fairly large areas. But mm. at what point for you does it become a concern where an alarm bell sort of goes off for you? So I think for us, the concern would be is if we have repeated deaths of the same cause, uh, you know, but that, uh, and that would imply that we really are not um, adapting our strategy as we kind of go along. This very much is because it's a quite a unique project. Um, there isn't a precedent. It hasn't really been done before uh, to this scale. And um, so there is a learning curve. Uh, and that's, as I keep saying, you know, science, uh, you can't do science based just on prediction. You know, you have to actually do the experiments. And, and um, so some criticism of this project saying that, oh, it's just one big experiment. I say, absolutely, it is. Of course it is. How else do you do science? You progress by actually experimenting. But the very important thing is that you don't just um, throw the animals out there and see what, what happens to them. You're trying to learn as you go along. It's what I call adaptive management. So you're adapting the strategy. And that's why I'm very much against people who say, but you're not sticking to the action plan. Uh, action plan is, for me, a very, very static document. It gives you a framework to work with. But if it's too restrictive, then it means you cannot actually adapt to changing circumstances or to unforeseen circumstances. Um, you try to anticipate every problem that you're going to uh, encounter, but that's impossible. I mean, we just don't have uh, that kind of model available to us at the moment. It is very important that when a, a cheetah does die, we try and establish as best we can what the cause of that death is um, so that everything can be done to try and avoid that or minimize that at least going forward. And I think that that's, that's what's happening at the, at, the, at the moment. Fortunately, you know, I don't think um, the three deaths are not going to have a significant impact uh, on the project's success in the end. Certainly not this stage. I think if we if we reach in the in the action plan, we stated too that it's only a really major problem if we had to get to the about a fifty percent percent mortality rate. And then again, it, it doesn't just it's not just oh well that's a number. It, it depends on what the cause is. If we cannot mitigate against that cause, then we've got a real problem. So for example, if we had to experience deaths due to leopards killing the cheetahs as soon as we release them, you know they get killed by leopards, and we had a fifty percent mortality rate. Well, that's a real problem because. Because how are we going to deal with it? We can't just kill the leopards or remove them from the system in order to protect the cheetahs, because that itself has conservation consequences. So that would be, for me, a, a very serious problem. But other risks that can be mitigated uh, against, they are, on, are not as much of an issue because we can deal with them as we go along. Dr. Adrian says a big misconception about cheetahs is the kind of landscape that they thrive in. He says the biggest problem cheetahs have faced when it comes to living in other landscapes is the presence of another animal that wants land for farming. I think that probably the biggest misconception about cheetahs is that they are only adapted to these very open grassland plains of Africa and that any other kind of vegetation environment, you know, sort of landscape is uh, something that they they can't adapt to. Um, 
And I think the, this misconception comes really from um, where we find cheetahs today. But if we look at the historical range of cheetahs uh, in Africa, they've occurred across Africa. Uh, there are only a few areas in uh, the forests um, of West Africa and perhaps the, the very dry desert areas of North Africa. But they occupied most of the other areas, uh, all the savannas, most of even woodlands in Africa. Um, and where they currently exist today, East Africa and in Namibia, Botswana, um, parts of, of South Africa, are areas where that are not really that useful to farmers. Uh, most of the farming land has been taken for agricultural purposes. So where we find them today is actually in what is what we would consider marginal uh, environments for cheetahs and not ideal. The ideal spots for cheetahs have already gone. You know, they they've um, been taken over by farming. And I think that's the the main issue that we would or the misconception that I would like to try and change. The cheetahs, uh, although they have the high speed, they're also able to uh, employ um, ambush predatory uh, behaviors. So they can operate in, in very similar fashion to leopards. They certainly are a little bit more sensitive. You know, leopards are very robust uh, creatures, whereas Cheetahs are far more sensitive to changes, but they've uh, adapted some evolutionary strategies uh, by increasing their uh, actual um, ability to reproduce. So most of the issues that are raised with regards to conservation of cheetahs are, um, you know, they don't have a problem with um, surviving in a number of environments, but as soon as you put humans in that environment and the impact of humans, whether it be snaring, hunting, that kind of thing, it has a massive impact on, on cheetah populations. This, for me, it raises one important question, which is, at least in India, the entire cheetah project seems to be then dictated by the fact that cheetahs are grassland animals that need wide open spaces. Mm. But what you're saying is essentially, Kuno needn't have been the only place for the cheetahs no. to go to? It gets a little bit more complicated than that. If you look at the historical distribution in India, I mean, it's pretty much most of India that would have been occupied by cheetahs at some stage, obviously in, in different densities. When we look at Kuno, one of the, the main uh, objectives of Project Cheetah was to create uh, a situation where you have an umbrella species, uh, very much similar to the role that the tiger has played in many other reserves uh, across India. Um, the tiger attracts a great deal of attention. It uh, brings in um, uh, tourists. Those tourists then bring in money. Um, there's also uh, just incentives for the local conservation staff, the, the forestry department, to um, protect those areas more intensively. That then has a, a sort of... Um, downstream follow-on benefits to many of the other species in those landscapes. So there are areas in India where we don't have tigers, and Kuno was certainly one, but it was those reserves where we didn't have a key species, or umbrella species, as we would call it, um, that uh, was a strong motive to, to bringing actual cheetahs to those areas. Um, and certainly that, I think, is why there is still a strong focus on um, not utilizing other tiger reserves or other areas in India where there are keystone species at this stage. As Dr. Adrian said, one thing with cheetahs is their ability to adapt to different kinds of landscapes. But for now, all the cheetahs that are being brought to India are only coming to the Kuno National Park in Madhya Pradesh. He says this isn't the long-term plan, but accepts that this could be due to factors in India that he doesn't quite understand. 
The other thing that has created an issue, I think, is is we were very much under the impression that we would be having, at this stage, we would have more than one reserve available. It was never planned to be just Kuno. Um, and that whole process has taken a lot longer than what we had anticipated. Um, in some cases, reserves that we thought were ideal for, for cheetahs are just not, uh, don't seem to be um, being made available at all, like Mukundra Hills. Um, so there are reasons, and I do understand. Um, this is one of the things that we don't realize in conservation. I mean, we we often dealing with biological systems. We understand biology to some extent. But uh, when it comes to political issues, those are things that uh, us as biologists and veterinarians don't necessarily, you know, take all cognizance of, but they are real things. So they, they you know, have to find solutions and you can't just, you know, uh, steamroll over those uh, problems. They have to be considered as well. Uh, and sometimes they're very legitimate political issues that need to be um, resolved and negotiated and dealt with. So it's a tremendous challenge. There's been mm. some criticism that, you know, that the existing batch of animals that we've got have lived far too long in captivity, whether in preparation mm. for the translocation, and they're continuing to be excessively stressed and thus becoming mm. vulnerable. What what do you make of these charges? The time that they spent in, in captive environment is, um, you know, unfortunate. Uh, the reasons why that happened, the signing of the MOU with South Africa was delayed well beyond what we anticipated. Perhaps in, you know, the decision to go ahead and, and try and get an MOU in place, um, I think will the benefits of that will only be seen in the coming years because we've now really got commitment from the South African government towards a longer term plan for the project. And that is really critical. If we just took 20 animals over and, and then we come back and say, well, you know, now South African government's no longer willing to support the project, then we kind of did in the water right from the start. 20 animals is not going to be enough to establish a proper population across um, India. We need quite a lot more. And that number of animals is definitely available, but we need the commitment from the South African government, which we now have. It was an unfortunate thing in that, yeah, we paid the price for that. Um, but in the long term, I think we're going to still reap the benefits. Currently, where they are in the actual hunting camps in, in Kuno, they're at least now out of quarantine, which is, you know, quarantine would have been they close proximity to each other, very small areas, um, and having to eat an, an artificial diet, which um, as good as we can get it is not going to be anything close to what we'll get from fresh meat that they hunted themselves. I don't believe that there's any real major stress to those animals. Yes, the individual issues now with regards to, uh, clearly, uh, I mean, a female that gets bullied by males is definitely going to be um, stressed. There's a lot of stress involved in that sort of situation. But if you look at the, the rest of the animals, um, uh, besides that sort of male-female interaction that potentially is going to have uh, harmful effects, uh, I don't think that there's any significant stress to those animals at, at the moment. They are actually living a, a life of, of luxury uh, you know, where they're protected, they've got food available, they've, they've got protection, um, and um, they've got a, a relative uh, freedom of, of just exposure to stressors. There aren't any things in the environment that are going to cause them any great deal of stress. Dr. Adrian says a big problem for those caring for the cheetahs in India is that the spotlight that's on them after the deaths of the three animals. He points out that this is the first time that cheetahs are being released in the wild in India in over 50 years, and a lot of the learning about it is happening on the go. He's optimistic that things will get better in the coming days. 
I think one of the unfortunate things that, you know, here is that you can imagine just working at Kuno and being responsible for these animals. The world is watching, uh, you know, somebody's telling you, please take a risk. And you're saying, mm, I'm, not so, I'm not so sure. I'd rather do nothing than actually take uh, the risk. But those risks have to be taken. We have to move forward. Otherwise, we just sit, we're dead in the water. We're waiting, we're holding animals in captivity uh, when we need the project to progress. Um, so I, I feel very sorry for those people just in, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, the criticism that they're having to face, but also they just... You know, Moving forward, they have to take the risks. And sometimes we, there's a bit of a learning process. Uh, they are learning themselves. They haven't worked with cheetahs, many of the people that have been uh, responsible for tracking these animals. Um, we can try and tell them as much as possible, but actually a lot of that learning only takes place when they're working with live animals in the field. And that experience, there's, there's no way of bypassing it. They have to get that experience um, themselves. The People doing the post-release monitoring, some of those teams are, are really quite experienced already just after the last few months. But if we release another five cheetahs uh, into Kuno in the next month or so, uh, that means five more teams have to be trained. And, um, you know, those people come from uh, backgrounds where they've never done this kind of thing necessarily before. Um, and they learn pretty quickly, I'm pretty sure. But, you know, there still are risks um, in that training process. It has to be done with live animals. It can't be simulated uh, other than the very basics that we can teach them. The three deaths, uh, while it surely doesn't signal the failure of the project, um, it, as you have illustrated, has certainly um, created some causes of alarm. What do you suggest is the way forward now? We're not just writing it off and saying, oh, well, that they just die. You know, that's, that's, that's um, just to be expected and uh, not to worry. We worry about every single animal. But at the same time, I guess there are very few options. Let me just say this. There are very few options with regards to cheetah conservation worldwide. Um, every single cheetah population in the world currently, other than the South African meta population in, in the fenced reserves, is in decline. Whatever conservation strategies we have, other than putting fences up and keeping them behind fences, is not working um, in, in Africa. Um, and we're losing huge numbers of cheetahs to snares, um, to hunting, um, and to just conflict with, with um, you know, humans. But my point really with this is to say that going forward in terms of cheetah conservation, we can't keep doing exactly the same things and expect some very different result. We're going to have to take some risks and we're going to have to move forward and try new things. And certainly this project um, reintroduction of cheetahs into India is a new strategy, um, which is, I, I fully agree, ambitious. There are many, many challenges um, and it's not going to be easy. And it, we never anticipated that it was going to be easy right from the start. But our alternative is to just sit back and give up and say, well, you know, that's it for cheetahs. You know, we, we just have to watch them basically decline or we have to put them behind fences as we do uh, in South Africa and that those are the only populations that are going to exist. But obviously, there, there's a space issue there. We can only go up to, you know, 500 cheetahs in South Africa. Maybe, maybe we can push it up to 600 in fenced reserves, but then we've run out of space. Then there isn't any more space for, for cheetahs. So India is a, is a, a real potential uh, opportunity for us in terms of cheetah conservation when we, when we think of uh, the global cheetah conservation. And um, so in terms of, of uh, what we would judge then as a success, obviously, is to um, establish a stable, self-sustaining 
population of cheetahs in India. That means probably in the region of at least 100 individuals in India. And even that in itself would not necessarily get, uh, you know, be in the long term um, genetically viable to just rely on 100 animals. So we would want some exchange between Southern Africa or Southern Africa or even East Africa um, and uh, India at some stage, just to ensure that there is still active uh, gene flow. But once we've got sort of in that region, then we would say, okay, and 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 the animals have settled into their home ranges. We've got a, a fairly good um, you know, interaction between those animals. Uh, they've established their, their communication networks, their breeding, um, and displaying all of those normal behaviors. Then we can really talk about um, a successful outcome. But that's still a long way away. You know, we've still got a lot of challenges to face. We've only, and, and also what we're going to realize is that in some areas in India, uh, cheetahs will probably thrive. In other areas, they might not do as well. So we've got these, you know, source populations where they're breeding well and, and you're getting an excess a number of animals being bred in one area and moving out into other areas where they may survive, but they may not necessarily breed that well. There has to be a constant migration. Once we've seen that sort of established, um, then we, you know, we really know that we the project has been a success. So I'm not, I don't think we can judge much of it other than to see that we're making progress. We definitely want to be moving forward. In the end, Dr. Adrian says that while he appreciates the criticism of the project, he says a lot of it doesn't look at the scale of the mission being undertaken. Dr. Adrian feels that for now, the only choice is to keep course correcting as needed and persevering with the project. This project has been criticized from many quarters and I, and I appreciate the, you know, the, the criticism. Um, I, I think that what many people just don't realize is they aren't often able to put themselves in our shoes and, and be able, they, they don't have full knowledge. I mean, we try and be as open, transparent as possible, but to, to try and co explain the complexity, why certain decisions were made um, and, and not others uh, is not often clear to people. So you often get people with very limited, limited understanding of the project. And it's not because it's just because they're not part of the project necessarily that they don't always understand. And we can try and communicate as best we can as to why certain decisions were made, but it's incredibly complex and so many factors that need to be taken into consideration that um, all I would like to ask is that people just, you know, um, before they, become aggressively um, sort of uh, critical of the project that they try and consider what is what we're trying to achieve here. You have to persevere uh, even uh, in difficult circumstances. The team at uh, Kuno, I think, um, and everyone involved, the NTCA, WII and so on, are really working very hard under tremendous pressure uh, in this project. And uh, maybe people just appreciate what these people are really trying to do. Um, it's, it's not something that has been done. If this project fails, I can guarantee you that um, other conservationists will not attempt anything like this for many, many years to come. And that is actually the biggest tragedy um, because, as I said, there are not any many big solutions and certainly not for, for cheetah conservation um, that are working at the moment. Um, so if this doesn't work, we, we really... Uh, you know, have not many other avenues um, to to explore, and people will be very reluctant to take big risks. And I certainly think going forward, we are going to have to take big risks in terms of conservation. We're going to have to try things that we've never tried before. Active management of wildlife is going to become the uh, way in which wildlife is going to be managed. This idea that we can leave wildlife to just establish on its own, um, and you know that we can't interfere, is just nonsense. 
the world is changing way too fast um, for that for for wildlife to be able to adapt to those changes um, in every any sort of evolutionary sense. So um, adaptive management of wildlife is critically important, and this is an example of that kind of adapt you know of active management of of wildlife. And we we you know really need to show this as you know success in this project for others uh, to be able to take those risks and and do the same. Today's episode was produced by Jairaj Singh, Sunai Marathe and Anuja Singh. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We're available on TY+, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, email us at tuipodcast at timesinternet.in.